0: everybody, you're listening to Angel Nears, the podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders, where founders and operators share their first-hand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Ole Kujakov, and our guest today is Cedric Kovacs Johnson, founder and CEO of Flume Health, a digital age health plan administrator intentionally built to reduce healthcare costs, improve quality of care, and transform the user experience for both employers and members. Today, we're talking with Cedric about reinventing how the most important companies buy and access healthcare. Before we get into that, Cedric, welcome to the show. Thanks, Oleg. Really happy to be here. Excited to talk with you. Let's get started. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get your start in this space?
1: Yeah, it's a bit of a roundabout story. I actually had no kind of healthcare training before Flume, so to speak. I was a chemical engineer in college, started a company, a 3D printing company. With some friends, the company was bought by MakerBot about a year after we graduated. And I knew I wanted to work in sort of a space where there was very little tech precedent and settled in on healthcare and through kind of that focus and then a series of family events basically found what is now Flume. And it was it was basically instead of a solution looking for a problem, which is what I felt three D printing was, this was the opposite lack of lack of solutions everywhere.
0: Yeah. So I know a little bit about how the company got started, but tell us how you came and arrived at this conclusion that uh, this was a, a problem that needed solving and, and not the other way around.
1: Yeah, sure. So the core insight, and I think a lot of people can relate to this, is that in, in US healthcare, your insurance company is actually more influential and more powerful than even your your doctor. And this became really obvious to me when my little sister um, was going through a a major brain surgery, and her neurologist and her PCP were pushing for one thing, and her insurance company was sort of denying or, or, or dragging their feet. And it was like a negotiation process to get kind of very basic, already sort of approved and correct care through. And so we looked at this and we said, you know, what is an insurance company? How do they make decisions? How are they structured? And what we realized was that nobody's really happy with how things are set up today um and the very nature of what a health plan or an insurance company is was sort of being challenged and you have all these new digital health companies you have all these new entrants who are sort of unbundling the health plan they're picking apart little pieces new healthcare networks and provider networks new pharmacy benefit managers new digital health point solutions and they're all playing a very specific role and this is really promising. Like The, the, the effect of this is, is awesome. But the downside is that basically when you try to put all those pieces back together, um, things start to fall through the cracks. And we realized that there was a whole administrative piece, a whole infrastructure to support these new types of health plans that were kicking ass on cost and were delivering really high quality care. That infrastructure piece was missing. And that was the reason why when you're going to the doctor and using a modern health plan, it feels like a black box. You feel like you don't know what's covered. You don't know what things are going to cost. You don't know all these kind of bells and whistles that you're told about at open enrollment. You forget which ones to use and when. And we basically look at this and we say, this is actually an administrative problem. And the administrator needs to be rebuilt for you know the, the modern world where health plans are more complex, there's more moving parts. And that's what we're building at Flume.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. So tell us what you do. What's your mission at Flume Health? So
1: we want to make healthcare more affordable and easier to use. And we're doing that sort of indirectly. We're doing that by powering plans that are designed to deliver better outcomes at a lower price. So our mission, where we want to be, is we want to be the operating system for every health plan in the US. So today we're powering... health plans for what are called self-insured employers. Think of these like really small insurance companies. And these are self-insured employers ranging from uh, law offices in West Virginia to manufacturers in Canton, Ohio. And what they have in common is that what they were getting from a traditional health plan was a high, highly inflating cost that was uh, you know, doubling in cost every four to five years. And just reduce skinnier and skinnier benefits that, frankly, most people couldn't afford to use. And what they were able to do was re-architect, use some of these unbundled components to re-architect a new plan. And they put it all back together and operationalized and launched these plans on Flume. So on Flume, on average, our customers year one saved over $5,000 per employee, which is remarkable, right? Uh, I mean, it's a that's a close to 37% decline in cost and we ended up beating the expected cost by 22%. So that's year 1, year 2 it was a flat trend meaning we not only saved these clients a ton of money they renewed at that that new baseline. So the net effect of this is we have customers who crazy stuff was happening where we have customers who save so much money year 1 they actually re, they actually rebated each of their employees the full premium that they paid the year before. So that was actually a construction company in Indiana, and that amount was around $15,000. So the effect of doing this well, the effect of restructuring healthcare means people can actually afford to use the benefit that they're already paying through the nose for, uh, and they can actually afford to use it.
0: Hmm. That's that's really interesting. So. I think you mentioned it already, but I, I want to talk about your market, uh, your addressable market here. You know, healthcare is enormously complicated. It's huge. Can you break down maybe your market segment and, and why you chose that segment?
1: Yeah. So we started, like I mentioned, with what are called self-insured employers, but Flume can work with anybody who wants to launch a health plan. So we started with self-insured employers, which are basically, think think of these like employers who reach a certain size. And they literally become their own health insurance companies and this is actually how most of the health plans in the us are structured 80 percent of companies with 500 employees or more are self insured it's kind of little known fact in us healthcare and so what you have is you have tens or hundreds of thousands of these self-insured employers each of them now is an insurance company they need to run the back office so we start with self-insured employers because they're they're nimble they make decisions every year based on renewal increases right and they're willing to try new things and they're willing to try new things like flume right so we started there but we're naturally progressing to be a a platform that can run health plans even for large insurance companies and carriers and we're actually starting to make progress in in the platform world as well
0: Hmm. and can you unpack like Who's involved in this whole process? Who are the key players when it comes to healthcare, uh, at, least the, the, at least as far as what you're dealing with? Yeah,
1: it's, a, it's an interesting question to ask. We have, at a given time, a handful of, of stakeholders. We have the employer themselves, which in this case is also what's called the plan sponsor, which is the entity that actually takes on the risk. So Flume does not take on the risk, there's a plan sponsor that takes on the risk in our model the, the plan sponsor and the employer are one and the same, right? Okay. So that, that's basically think of it like two entities. Then you have the patient themselves, you have their dependents, you have providers, right? And then you have brokers slash advisors. So brokers are the people who help these employers construct and design their health plans and get them started. Advisors are actually how we get most of our business we, we talk to advisors, we learn which of their clients are struggling with cost, and then we typically start and we build a proposal for them, and then uh, they choose us, right? So there are many other counterparties, there are many vendors in the mix of healthcare that do very specific, everything from revenue cycle management to disease management to pharmacy benefit management. We don't really have to get into all of them, they sort of support this health plan, and they're under the hood. And in fact, if you start looking at those relationships, there's a new wave of companies that are transparent and they're modern and they're tech enabled. There's a lot it, historically in the legacy versions of those under the hood companies that are doing a lot of backdoor dealing, They're pay- people are paying <laughs> each other off. And that's where there's a lot of like dirty practices in healthcare that, um, You know, being an outsider when I came in was was pretty shocking, to be honest, to find.
0: And for these healthcare plans, like how do they typically, how do employers typically purchase healthcare plans for their own employees? Yeah. So if you're a small company,
1: you're going to work with a broker and they're going to give you some quotes and then you're going to buy, you're going to buy health insurance for your employees. And every year you're up for renewal and you sort of just, you're given a rate, you're given a, 10% 10% renewal increase or 20%. We saw a 65% one, one year, right? It's um, and you basically just have to take it, and it's based on how healthy or not healthy your group is. And so it's really sad that if you're a company with 80 employees and one person develops, you know, cancer, um, it could affect the rates for everybody, and it could throw off the affordability. And so what's happened is as these costs have been passed on and born, Um, by the plans, these employers, you know, some of these are, you know, low margin businesses like construction companies, they can't sustain a doubling every four year of healthcare costs, right? So they start passing some of it on to their, their employees in the form of higher and higher deductibles. And we see this all the time, where you have an employee base of people who make you know, the, sometimes if they're, if it's a blue collar employer, anywhere from 35 to $50,000 a year, and their healthcare deductible is six, $7,000 a year, it means you literally cannot even afford to get the care that you pay premium for. And so you have this sort of a death spiral that happens where people are, you know, getting sicker and sicker. The costs are so high, they avoid care. So things get worse, things fester then because they're expensive, they end up in the emergency room, the costs go up globally. And it's just like this it gets worse and worse and worse the, the more you avoid it. So we're looking at this and saying, can you sufficiently return the economics of the plan to a state of normal that you can actually drive, drive a plan benefit that people can afford to use? And we talk a lot about member experience at Fluem and we say the best possible member experience you can have is being able to confidently afford the care you're about to get. Um, And that's probably way more important than having, you know, a shiny app or anything like that.
0: All right. Next, talk about the lack of transparency when it comes to cost and quality of services. What are some of the structural barriers that might restrict flexibility when you're designing these plans?
1: It's a really, really interesting question. So price transparency as a topic is, you know, very it's very widely discussed now in healthcare. when I got in. It was something that I felt like I was the first person talking about it. And now it's on the cover of the Wall Street Journal, right? I think price transparency is actually the tip of the iceberg in terms of what's interesting here. And I'll I'll tell you why. So price transparency is this question of, I should know what I'm going to pay when I go to the doctor. And why is that even an issue now? Well, it's an issue because the pricing is high, but also because members have higher deductibles than ever. So they owe more. So they want to know what they're going to owe. The only reason members have high deductibles is because the, the global cost is so high. So I don't think true patient price transparency, there's all these laws going into place that the these hospitals have to disclose their fee schedules and negotiated rates and all this stuff. I don't think that really gets to the root of the problem because it's very hard to predict what the cost of an encounter is. There are all these like billing modifiers. It's you know, patients have to be really savvy and look this up. And then secondly, Um, you don't really know the scope of your appointment until after the fact, right? You, you might, your doctor might order labs or an x-ray. So I think the price transparency conversation is actually kind of a bit of a distraction from all of the opaque crap that sits under the surface and those vendors I was telling you about earlier, the number of relationships and people who are getting paid on your dime that you've never seen. They're certainly not a provider of yours, but they're part of this like opaque healthcare supply chain. That's where I think a lot of the bodies are buried. And there's incentives for you to use the wrong kind of care at the wrong place. Somebody's getting paid, but your plan is absorbing that cost, creating this system where you now have a high deductible and you care about price. So in our plans at Flume, We're focused on how do we remove costs from the equation sufficiently that the plans can go to zero deductible or low deductible or fixed copay or create a mechanism where the patient actually knows what they're going to pay. The plan doesn't necessarily know the exact dollar figure of every uh, of every appointment, but that doesn't really matter because it's in the zone of reasonable and that plan is prepared to pay it. And I'm not sure if that totally made sense, but. I'm I'm happy to go back and 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 re, and go over that again.
0: No, no, I think it does. Fixed cost for for deductibles and and the like I understand that the insurance companies want to know everybody wants to know what the final cost is going to be, but it's difficult when there's billing modifiers and, and other things that kind of factor into this big complex equation. Did I miss anything there?
1: No, I I, I would just say that I don't think price transparency as it's being discussed is really the root cause problem. And people say, if we get price transparency, we get people to shop. I also don't think people shop for healthcare services, the way that they shop for shoes. Um, I think the bigger question is there's a load of non-transparency that's invisible to patients. That's actually the culprit behind their costs that's creating a, that's creating a health plan that they have these high deductibles around, right? So if you can if you can eliminate those hidden costs, and that's what we're doing at Flume, you can create a plan that is zero deductible, right? And employers can say, "I don't need to pass these costs along to my members. I'm going to make this plan a zero deductible plan this year." And we're seeing that happen more and more. And you can only get there if you look at the under the surface stuff. So anyway, the price transparency conversation, in short, the TLDR is. There's far more important, non-transparent stuff below the surface that you need to know where to look, and you need to have an administrator that's capable of, of actually doing something about it. And that's a big part of what we do at Fluim.
0: I see. I see. Yeah. And you mentioned the in the mission. You know, what's your mission? It's fixing this administrative bit. So uh, thank you for clarifying. What's the role of a TPA or a third-party administrator? Really good question.
1: So a TPA very simply is an organization that does all the back office work of a health plan or a health insurance company. So that's everything from paying and processing claims to, um, managing the eligibility. So who's on the plan, who's off all the reporting, all the compliance, all the connectivity and trading partners that we have to share data with. So it's kind of this like central nervous system of a health plan. And it's, it's a lot of kind of daily paper shuffling in the old world. It, we've heard this expression when we got into the business that you, there's no such thing as a good third party administrator. There's no such thing as a good TPA. Uh, you just have like less bad ones. And for us, that was this insight that they're not highly differentiated. It's highly fragmented. Nobody's happy. It's really low NPS. This is a, this is a chance to actually come in and say, it is a commodity. But what you want from this is high uptime, high reliability, high configurability, and transparency for us isn't just this virtue signaling, like, let's be transparent and good guys. It's actually this, this idea that if we're transparent, we're able to build plans that actually align with our customers, as opposed to building plans where we have an incentive to build plans a certain way because we can get a cut of, of the action, which is how the old world of TPAs have have survived and lived for, for years. So we're coming at this, um, we're, we're literally competing with companies that are 30 years old, have never built any of their own technology. And they're using, you know, humans in the loop, pushing a button.
0: Right. Next, can you talk about what, uh, what reference based pricing plans are?
1: <laughs> oh, this is a, this is a fun one. So when you're building a health plan one of the modules that you build in is the network. And so, you know, every plan that you have has the network of providers. So you look at your insurance card, it might be the Blue Cross network. It might be the Cigna network or the Aetna network. And so Aetna goes out and they, you know, form contracts with all these different providers. There's some subcontracting arrangements, but effectively, if you have the Aetna logo on your card and there's an Aetna provider, not only do you get access, but you get, um, you get pre-negotiated rates and you know, it says your insurance plan negotiated. It's not someone negotiating every bill. It's a pre-negotiated on mostly usually an annual basis, right? So what reference based pricing is, is basically looking at a lot of these networks and saying, you know, these networks are pretty good in some places, but in some areas with certain hospitals, especially, they haven't done a really good job negotiating. And how do you know if it's a fair price well, you can compare it against a benchmark price. So you could say, you know, in most services, the pick your network actually is good pricing. But for name a service like an orthopedic surgery, if you compare that to the same price that the government would pay, so what Medicare would pay for that price, it's a complete ripoff. It might be 3x the price, 4x, 5x the price. So your network's actually not doing a good job negotiating. They're maybe telling you they negotiate, but it's not actually there. So that was the core insight saying there's price inflation within the network. So why do we need a network? Why don't we treat every doctor like out of network? And this is that's what reference based pricing is. It's basically saying we're going to build a health plan with no network whatsoever. Every encounter is technically out of network. And when we go when you go in and they send us a bill, we're not going to pay them whatever price they want we're going to pay them the Medicare price plus 20% or plus 40%. Basically, this is a fair established price that the government sets and we're going to adopt it and actually pay you a premium on top of that. Right. So in some cases, the Medicare price is a little bit higher, but in most cases it's 30, 40% lower than you would otherwise pay. So, it's, It's a really powerful instrument. It also lets there's also second order effects that it unlocks. But reference-based pricing, I believe, started in 2008 as sort of an experiment, and it worked incredibly well. Costs were coming down like crazy, and it started getting adoption throughout the country. No one really knows how big it is now, how many plants have this strategy, but it's estimated to be in the millions. The problem, though, as you can imagine, is these hospitals started to figure out what's going on, that there's all these out-of-network patients that are negotiating, and two things happened. And on one hand, these hospitals started to get wise and figure out how to detect patients that were coming in with no network with reference-based pricing and in some cases denying access. And second, secondly, they figured out that these patients, you know, their insurance was basically billing at this rate that they didn't like, and they would start harassing the patients in some cases, suing the patients. And so it became this sort of, it can become this sort of a, a hostile environment if you do it with the wrong hospital in the wrong environment. So we have about less than half of our clients are reference-based pricing. Some of them are having a great time. They're saving a boatload of money, but others, you know, we've had to make adjustments mid-year because they're just in the wrong market and this hospital is going to play hardball. And it's, it's crazy to me that these hospitals are willing to go out and sue their patients and they're, you know, they have some holy name and they're, A nonprofit, and they're they're there to serve the community. And meanwhile, they have this, you know, massive glass structure with a grand piano in the lobby. As uh, my chief customer officer likes to say, so reference based pricing is, um, I think it's it's a tool you can use. You have to use it very carefully. We don't we're very careful before we sell a customer on it. There are many other tools in the toolbox. It's a very I would say it's a brute force approach. There are many more artful ways to contain costs
0: as well. Yeah. Thanks for helping me understand that. And should we mention PPO here? Uh, I know that it's another type of reimbursement.
1: Well, I mean, just very quickly, the PPO is the network. So when I said, what is the Aetna network or what's the Sigma network? That's a, a technically a PPO network. So reference-based pricing is instead of a PPO. So you choose
0: one or the other. I see. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Uh, let's keep going. You know, we have these new care models, especially today, 2021, virtual care is kind of a huge, a huge uh, attraction. There's also insurance navigation, digital therapeutics, but they're limited in their ability to kind of create systemic changes, despite playing a role in reducing costs and improving quality of care. Can you talk about these new models and and maybe some of the limitations?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, Do you mind giving me an example of one that you have in mind?
0: Telehealth? Does that work?
1: Yeah. And the, the question is basically, do
0: I think they work? do you think they work are they are they going to change things as much as advertised
1: yeah sure so some of them will some of them certainly will some of them won't right and i think that's that's the the battleground right now is you're going to see a ton of there's just been so much money put into digital health there are you know hundreds of these experiments being run right now and the ones that can prove clinical efficacy are going to scale and frankly we want to support as many of these experiments as we can so If you're a digital health company, you can plug into Flume and start offering your service to Flume members and our clients are really interested in seeing like the latest and greatest and building that as as a component of their health plan. And we do a lot of work to sort of push patients to these new solutions and then we measure the effect, right? We say this component over here really proved an ROI people on the plan are really happy with this component. Whereas this other one, you know, nobody's used it. They use it for a week, then they stop. And then you're, you know, we should, we should maybe cancel that one. So we're starting to have that conversation. I think if you zoom out though, if you're a virtual first digital health, whatever, the biggest issue you have is you are a point solution within a bigger health plans offering, right? So you're trying to you're trying to be, let's say, LevonGo, and you're trying to do this like world class diabetes management. But there's a plan that has all these rules that are that sort of supersede you. And at times it can be really hard to figure out who the right patients are. It can also be really. And that's why you see really low utilization rates. And a lot of times patients don't really know how to engage with these new point solutions. So. Part of the opportunity that we expect to to start really manifesting at Flume is we think that you're going to see some of these point solutions say, you know what, I don't want to play within the Blue Cross or the Aetna or the Cygnus sandbox. I actually want to go full stack and I want to build my own, you know, my own benefit. And I want to go and compete head on with the health insurance companies of the world and say, I'm going to build the health plan for people with, chronic knee pain right and instead of playing within their sandbox you're kind of building your own and i think that world is probably about to exist and we aim to power those sort of challenger models and and uh, give them a shot at reaching scale whether they want to do it
0: within a flume plan or they want to go out and start their own plan awesome so let's kind of move on to, to talking about you know Foom Health and, and your company here. Timing is so important for startups. Why do you think now is the right time for your company? Part one. Uh, next, can you talk about what your value proposition is? And and while you're doing that, if you could also talk about you know how are you innovating at at Flume versus you know uh, the competition or what's out there.
1: Our main value prop is we can build a very tactical health plan out of the modules that exist and run it and launch it in some cases less than thirty days, and those plans run the way they're supposed to. And they almost always result in massive dollar savings. So it's, it's a, it's a bit of storytelling. It's a lot of financial illustration. I would say our best clients are looking for a TPA to do something that they've had in mind for a long time, a plan that they have sought to have run properly. And we're the first TPA that can sort of absorb their specification. If if that makes sense and then your your second question was how do we innovate or, or how are we innovative or what maybe what's different we have we have a big advantage that we were founded 2 years ago when you know modern uh, the modern saas stack exists right so in many ways we're not held down by you know legacy clients on legacy systems using spaghetti code and and uh pen and paper processes. Um so a lot of our competitors just they wouldn't know how to handle or manage an, a team of engineers, let alone, you know, really know what to to ask of them. So we have that advantage. You know, our starting assumption was things can and should be done with software that, you know, rather than having a human in the loop. Not to say that, you know, there aren't places for for people. Uh we, we do auditing and customer support. And then, you know, the other thing is building for this modern use case. Nobody's really figured out that modern health plans, it's not just about rebuilding the old TPA just with software. It's about saying, what is different about the health plans that are being created and designed today that wasn't true? So it's not just copying the old TPA model software. It's actually saying, what are the features and and, and components that need to exist, whether that's... Uh, API-based trading, or um, different kind of billing modules—it's—it's it's really up and down the board, where we've had to—we've had to sort of take a magnifying glass and ask her, ask the question, you know, what needs to be true today and what needs to be true in
0: five years. Can you talk about these uh, three core principles that make Flume stand out, uh, and and they're you know what what make you different? They're uh, technology, transparency, and and cost efficiency. How do you combine those, and why is it important? For
1: us, you know, like like I mentioned earlier, transparency is this very overused word in healthcare. And transparency is actually, for us, it allows us to build really good plans and not be bogged down by you know, conflicts of interest. So I'll give you an example. Some of our competitors will say, you know, we'll, we'll we'll run this plan, but we can't use that network, or we can't use this pharmacy benefit manager, and the reason is that they're quote unquote preferred. Is also giving them, you know, a ten percent uh, commission <laughs> for placing uh, the business. So transparency for us is actually an offensive tool. It's not just a like a virtue in that sense. Technology is, you know, it's that's the company. Technology is the reason we're able to do what we do at scale, right? We don't have humans sitting there pushing a button. We have software that does that. And 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 the advantage there is that not only can you do things really quickly and reliably, there's fewer room for error, but when you start to build systems on top of that, um, those systems can actually interoperate and communicate with each other. So an example of this is rather than saying, I think that bill was processed a week ago, let me go run a report and check for you. We can actually plug into our partners, give them an API feed, and they can see the status of that claim in real time. Right. And so technology is not just a do this job faster. It actually lets us build a meaningfully better kind of ecosystem uh, around it. And then I'd say the last one was cost containment. Cost containment is sort of a, a lagging indicator, I'd say, around doing those first two things right. Right. Because we have tech that runs these plants correctly, and because we're transparent and we build better health plans, um, the cost containment is a natural byproduct. Of doing that right, sort of like a trust the process moment. But that's certain. You know, cost containment is certainly the reason why our customers
0: buy us. Yeah, thank you for uh, answering those questions. I uh, I think I threw two questions together you at at one point with the value prop and the innovation, and then uh, that last one was a little tricky. So you're navigating these really well. Next up, I want to ask about key milestones that you've achieved. Uh, What are some of those milestones that you've Hit, uh, on, along your journey up until this point today? And, and where do you stand now?
1: Sure. Well, I would say, you know, we've had some fundraising milestones. I, really important is that we, we, you know, we launched last January and it was this big, big moment for us. We, we both launched the TPA and this whole member concierge team and we put water through through the pipes for the first time and now we've gone back we've raised some more money we're scaling up the team significantly we've hired you know world-class people who've seen parts of this problem at scale before and frankly you know there are a few milestones that i can't quite disclose yet that are we've recently hit so maybe that'll be part two of the podcast but you know just getting out of the gates with this and having Thousands of people in the U.S. call Flume Health, you know, their insurance company is a, is a really, really crazy feeling for, for myself. I know the team and, you know, it's, it's real. That, 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 was a, that was a pretty big deal.
0: Yeah. Well, when it hits a million plans, we'll, uh, we'll invite you back as a little celebration. Talk about your team. Talk about the importance of, uh, of team building and the early emphasis that you placed on that.
1: So team was something I very early on was aware that I, um, it was going to be a blind spot for me. Um, so I came in unlike my first startup where you know we were all engineers and we were building a really kind of R&D heavy uh, project. Um, I was very well read on healthcare by the time I was ready to hire, but I was by no means a pro. So my first hire was actually someone named Kevin Schlotman who was actually chairman of the National Society of TPAs, and I'm so lucky that he even took my phone call. And then uh, the fact that he was interested in joining the team, especially that early, was was uh, a godsend to say it, <laughs> to put it lightly. Um, and what I what I learned what I figured out early on was that while we needed people who were pros and knew how this industry worked, we also needed people who could challenge, you know, the assumptions. So what I like to say is the team is filled with 50% people like me who want to burn healthcare to the ground and start over, and then 50% people like Kevin who deeply understand how the industry works. They're familiar with everything from the compliance requirements to uh, the the non-transparent parts of the industry, Um, but they actually think it can be done better. And what the beauty of our team is that we, we sort of approach each other almost like sparring partners around ideas where nobody assumes they have the full picture. Everyone wants to put their best foot forward and, and, and sort of test out the ideas. And I think what we leave with are really, um, really forward thinking ideas that are actually achievable. So it's not just pure blue sky thinking, it's grounded in, in the reality. Um, and then I'd say uh, of, of note, we have just in, incredible talent across the board. We also recently brought in Ann Kim, as our COO from Haven Healthcare and she's been absolutely wonderful to work with and transformative. And, um, you know, generally my team is people that it would be awesome just to spend 30 minutes on the phone with them and then to be able to work with them every day has just been, it's been a blessing.
0: Uh, Let's move on from the team and talk about customers. Who are your typical customers? Describe them.
1: Yeah. So today it's a lot of self-insured employers. So it's folks, uh, sort of like what I described earlier um you know a lot of blue collar a lot of healthcare costs that are driving their their reason to to look around and and a lot of these are you know increasingly private equity owned companies who are trying to manage costs or control it and you know we're getting to the point where the cost of healthcare can be 10 20% of your labor costs and it's just it's it's insane people are not getting value so that's been the situation we also have another category of customer i would say that uh are sort of I, I call "fuck the system customers uh they look at this and they think this is all broken and wrong and i want to build a healthier relationships with my local providers and you know we work with them as well and it's less about a financial story it's more about mission alignment and, and we love that well one of our early customers the day they learned what a pharmacy benefit manager was, they fired their broker and and hired us the next week.
0: <laughs> wow! So the next question was, can you give us an example of a happy customer? You might have already done that, but do you uh, or do, do you have another or uh, or a story you'd be willing to share? I'll
1: probably stick with the examples uh, I gave. <laughs> there, there's there there's uh, plenty to talk about, but I, I think I
0: probably covered it. Okay, okay, okay. Moving on to channels and partners, what's your go to market strategy?
1: So we, we work with brokers. So we we spend a lot of time qualifying brokers, understanding what part of the market they work with. And and brokers are are very skeptical and rightfully so. They represent their clients, which are the employers. And if they trust you, they will give you an what's called an RFP and give you a chance to create a proposal and bid on the business. And that's really where we get our foot in the door that process can be really tricky depending on our relationship with that broker. It generally ends up that once we close a client with a broker, so a typical broker will have maybe call it 20 employers in their portfolio. Once we close that first client on average in the next year, that broker will bring us three and a half times more business, meaning they're going to start bringing more and more of their clients to Flume. So it's really this situation of earn their trust. Once you're in with them, really earn their trust and they become, you know, they become this great referral partner and, and brokers are interesting because they're they're in the situation where they, they're salespeople and they've been trained to sell health plans uh, and negotiate health plans for their clients. But in the modern world, they have to sort of become architects and we actually help them figure out how to build plans, how to stay competitive. And how to bring that to their clients before someone else does, so we, we become their ally.
0: And typically, how do you reach those customers?
1: Call, conference, email, you know.
0: So you're doing outreach.
1: Yeah. well, increasingly, like we're we're at this point, our brand is well known enough that we do get in, in inbound. Mm-hmm. but it took it took quite a while for that to be true, and, and you know we we do quite a bit of up on
0: no, that makes sense. you know um are early stage is a startup, correct? like uh, I think that's typically how it goes um until you build that really built that brand, but to be getting inbound, that's fantastic. What is the role of the a i m m alt international Medical Management?
1: Ah, yeah, so uh, medical management is a is a module within the the stack so the networks and module so medical management is basically the the team that does the approve or deny right and so um, they they do that for our plans today
0: on some of our plans i see so so you work with them yep yeah okay all right let's talk about the business model can you talk about uh, how you make money what's your what's your sort of is it a fee for service or what do you do
1: yeah, it's, it's, um, I mean, so we're not a provider, right? So we make, we make money. We charge a per employee per month flat rate. So we don't make any other dollars. And if you compare that to our competitors, they're typically charging, you know, some per employee per month subscription cost. Plus they'll be taking a little bit of commission here, a little bit of commission there. On that full stack, they'll probably be taking a commission from three or four of those vendors. Um, and it's a very non transparent sort of, biased, I'd say conflicted position that most of our competitors are in. And, you know, like I said, I think for us, we've been in situations where they, their pricing, our competitors pricing will sometimes appear lower because they're making revenue elsewhere. And we've lost, we've lost prospects because of that. But, you know, we've always had this long-term view that transparency is actually a long-term asset for us. Sorry, the dog.
0: That's okay. I, we have one. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's start to wrap this up. What are some of the challenges that you face as a founder that, uh, that keep you up at night? What's, what are some of the toughest challenges you face
1: as a founder? It is, hmm. honestly, there's the, the, the big challenge of a founder generally. So this is my second time through this. I'd say it's two things. One is the amount of unstructured time. So, I'd come right out of school where I had a very clear class schedule and deliverables. And all of a sudden, you have 24 hours in a day you can do anything with it, including nothing. And that's very challenging to like figure out what that, that life balance is. And then there's this incredibly, you know, easy feeling of guilt that comes over you anytime you're not working. And any advice I have for any of my friends who become founders is take time, block out, take vacation. You know, there's no problem with going for a bike ride at 2 p.m. on a Wednesday because, you know, it's not, you know, there are very specific things that move the needle early stage for business and sometimes sitting it in front of your computer for 12 hours a day because it feels like the right thing to do. It's not what's right. And then the second thing is just dealing with uncertainty. There are so many things that early stage you're trying to prove or disprove and it can be weeks between getting feedback on whether you're right about something and that uncertainty, the lack of I'd say security in we're right, it's worth investing minutes of my life and time going in this direction. That was personally hard for me and I know for a lot of founders that's really challenging.
0: Yeah, the two great answers. Thank you. Healthcare is really complicated because it's full of dependencies. It's uh, you know legacy system. It's very old and it's got history. And there's tons of restrictions around everything. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing today, what would that be? When my investors invested in me, they asked, do
1: you think single payer comes out? What does that do to business? And I said, you know, single payer happens. First of all, I think it's a good thing. I'm Canadian. I think it would really hurt. Our business, we'd have to reinvent parts of what we do. But I think it would be a net positive. But if you're investing in me, you think that we will probably never get there. And our business plan is sort of predicated on more of the same from a regulatory standpoint. If I could wave magic wand, I think one thing that needs one or two things that that should exist for healthcare one is sort of a universal fee schedule. People have argued that that's going to, drive down competition. It, it'll be like a rent stabilization where people, you know, there's all these second order effects, but you know, Medicare has proven that they can get away with it. And every provider wants to offer, wants to see Medicare patients. So I actually think that would be in a net positive. And the second thing is, uh, this is a little detail, but stop loss carriers having a massive captive with all self-insured employers. So you don't have this kind of rate variance year over year would be, would be pretty huge.
0: All right. Uh, two deep answers. Well, Cedric, thank you so much. Uh, before we get out of here, uh, what's the best way for our listeners to reach you and flume health? I'm sure there's going to be lots of questions after this one.
1: My Twitter, LinkedIn website, all the above.
0: Yeah. All right. So we can, we can link, uh, what, what's your Twitter handle? We can link, uh, we could put LinkedIn uh, Cedric right there. Kojo, C E D R I C. K O J O. Awesome. All right. Well, we're going to end the show there. Um, If you liked it, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave us a rating. Cedric, thanks for joining the show today. We appreciate your time. Uh, Let's get out of here and go for a bike ride. Thanks, (laughs) y'all.